0: Welcome to episode 23 of iLoop, Interesting Lives of Ordinary People. My guest today is Gopa Kumar Menon. Gopa and I have known each other since the time we were both doing an MBA at IIM Bangalore. After graduation, Gopa spent 11 years in corporate finance working for venture capital funds. He quit that to follow his passion for wildlife conservation. He founded the River Otter Conservancy to protect otters and their habitat with projects in three landscapes in India. In his professional life, Gopa is a facilitator in the areas of negotiation and building influence. His mantra for life is encapsulated in his favorite poem, titled A Bag of Tools by R. L. Sharp. And this is how it goes. Isn't it strange that princes and kings, and clouds that caper in sawdust rings, and common people like you and me, are builders for eternity. Each is given a bag of tools, a shapeless mass, a book of rules, and each must make, before life is flown, a stumbling block or a stepping stone. We began by Gupa remembering how he came upon this poem and how it became one of the key influences in his life.
1: Yeah, so actually, um, the, the thing is that, you know, my, my father passed away when I was 18. Um, that was in 1984, so way back in time, you know, 37 years ago. So many years later, when I was going through. Uh, couple of his folders and he was a he was an extremely neat kind of person so I was going through one of these folders and I found this little poem inside and uh, he hadn't yet cut it out from a newspaper or a magazine the title of the poem is a bag of tools and it has struck me as probably the most beautiful short little poem that I've ever read and I know that you were super impressed by it as well.
0: I loved it, yeah.
1: And what it says is, uh, isn't it strange that princes and kings and clowns that taper in sawdust rings and common people like you and me are builders of eternity.
0: I love that. So that's kind of been, has that been sort of your mantra in your life? Since you found that poem?
1: I think so, yeah. I think that has been very important for me and uh, certainly trying to see if I can leave a mark in some way, yeah.
0: yeah. So tell me a little bit about the turning point that you, um, you want to talk about today.
1: So actually there were two, three turning points, R- Rohini, and um, A teacher of mine in college who used to teach us accounts and commerce and stuff like that, he gave me Schumacher's book on economics. And uh, E.F. Schumacher was a British economist of, of German origin, but very, very different. I mean, in that book, there's a chapter on Gandhian economics. There's a chapter on Buddhist economics. His way of looking at economics was so different from anything that I had seen. And I still have that book and it's still one of my most treasured possessions.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, and I've read it, you know, uh, quite often, I read a chapter here or a chapter there. And, and the second book was uh, uh, Louis Fisher's book on Mahatma Gandhi, which is um, also a very nice book. That book stayed with me for some time, um, but uh, Schumacher's book stayed with me for much longer. So that was, I think, one part of it. And and uh, uh, the second part was in, uh, you know, you start a corporate career and you go through the MBA, the, 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 the sort of grind of everything, and then you get into this. And I know that I had this feeling of dissatisfaction. So somewhere this feeling that, you know, um, you are privileged in many ways. And uh, are you going to stay with that privilege or... Are you going to do something more? It was a question without an answer. In fact, a big part of I think the last 25 years has been really searching for answers honestly and very often not finding them. So in 99, I had a very interesting two-day trip. I went, you know, till then I had never really gone into a forest as a, I had always gone in as a tourist. You know, a very typical touristy kind of experience. This time, I went with a couple of researchers whom I'd happened to meet. And they asked me to come along. And in those days, in 99, you know, rules were a lot more lax than they are now. So we went right into the Bandipur Tiger Reserve. And we were by the Kabini Reservoir. And we stayed overnight in something called an anti-poaching camp, you know, um, with a few forest guards. We were actually on top of a tree because there were so many elephants around. It was not safe to stay on the ground. It was one of the most terrifying nights of my life. I've never been so scared, right? But it was also massively transformational. I mean, I think when I came out that trip, when I recollected and I wrote about it, um, and I actually sent that note to my boss, uh, he put the... I, trust me, He he put that idea into my head. He said, uh, aren't uh, don't you think that should be your career doing something on this but basically what struck me was i needed to work with forest guards because they lived i found this one night terrifying and difficult and they just lived there this was their life so started working with a few volunteering with a few ngos which are working with guards and with the um, with the ecosystem of the guards you know giving them better equipment field uh, material and stuff so it's I think that one that one night was really that two days out in Bandipur Tiger is very very important. Yeah. The second one was uh-huh. in 2002. Just before I took the decision to leave the corporate world, I spent a week in a retreat with the founders of Body Shop, Anita Roddick and Gordon Roddick. And that is a such an unusual experience because so few people would have had it. And they are very different. I mean, they were the flower path generation in a sense you know they were they were really different and they were worth a few hundred million dollars back then but you wouldn't guess it if you saw them on the street you know they Mm -hmm. they were so so different and they were extremely passionate anita roddick of course was the more voluble and emotional of the two but gordon was also a very remarkable personality so they had this philosophy where the objective of business is profits are completely incidental. The objective is you really create transformation and change. So uh, I think the overall impression I got from meeting Gordon and Anita was that business exists for a far bigger reason. Yeah. And it's profits are very incidental. And I think frankly, there aren't too many examples like that. But yeah, that's so I think you were were asking about couple of experiences. I think these are really yeah
0: so I'm sort of you know I'm connecting the dots here and it feels like you know the very first seed of maybe doing things differently was planted when you read that book by Schumacher on you know a different way of thinking about economics than maybe you know what's become mainstream you know where economics is very intertwined with capitalism and you know profit being king and all that sort of stuff and and you know um then meeting you know um, this couple who obviously um became the epitome of how you know doing uh doing good can also be you know profitable so you don't you know that that having a business does not have to be um you know profits or doing the right thing so that's that's very interesting and 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 tell me a little bit about how you know you were able to weave in your other interests because obviously that was a different take on capitalism but then what did you change about your life to maybe you know mm. find answers to that question you were talking about you know that is there more you know there is this all there is or is there more to what I'm meant to be doing Hmm.
1: Mm. so for starters I quit my job <laughs> that did was a have great a
0: plan on, on what you were going to do or did you just decide that this is not for me and so I'm going to quit
1: Well, I had a pretty flaky plan, honestly. And uh, uh, it was to become a facilitator in the two areas that I had experience in. One was finance and the other was negotiation. So it started that way. And that would be my so-called business model. That would be how the money came in. Uh, And then along with a couple of friends, I set up a wildlife group, um, which was at that time not that sort of version 1.0. It was a very generic kind of wildlife initiative. It wasn't specific to otters, which is what I began to work on much, much later.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and we started supporting small projects that researchers were doing on species that were not at all mainstream, that were unusual. We started working on things like um, Restoration with farmers, doing things which were really following our heart, not the three of us. There were two other guys. So that really went on for a while. And I used to volunteer with a couple of NGOs as well. So it was, I think those were my core um, activities, but my money came in from the facilitation that I had set up. So I was sort of at some level, you know, um, uh, riding two horses at the same time.
0: Yeah. And I just want to take a little step back. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was you were doing in your corporate career? Uh,
1: after IMB um, 91 batch, you know, I, I uh, joined a, a venture capital fund and I was with them for five and a half years. And then I joined another VC fund. Um, again, another five and a half. So about 11 years in all. So 2002 is when I... Sort of got out of that, yeah. yeah, so it was two VC funds over eleven years.
0: yeah, mm. so I have a sort of you know maybe a question that hopefully hopefully answers something bigger later on. is that mm. as a VC you know um, investor, you know you have quite a lot of power in the way the companies that you invest in actually run their business, don't you? because you know you influence in some ways you know the direction they take mm-hmm. and you know how how they actually turn a profit. So did you, at that point in your career, start to get a sense that, you know, perhaps there was a different way of running business or did that come later for you?
1: I think that was an independent function because um, most of the companies we funded were really in the tech business. And, you know, it's it's very much like a horse with blinkers. You know, you, you look at, exiting the moment you invest and they too look at either, you know, giving you an exit or going through an IPO or whatever. So there is no time to think of a larger canvas or to think of am I doing something that's making an impact. Uh, When I say I am referring to the investee company, let alone the investor. And this whole underlying issue of meaning in what we are doing is almost considered an irrelevant question. You know, how can, why should a business have any meaning? After all, it's there, it's business, right? If you want meaning, you set up an NGO or do something in your spare time. I think that's, frankly, and this is a very jaundiced view uh, that I have, uh, Rohini. I think that's a ridiculous way of looking at life. That, you know, you compartmentalize things and say between nine to five, I'm not going to create any meaning and any meaning has to happen between five and nine before I sleep, you know. I think everything we do should have at least meaning to us, if not meaning to the planet and to others. But maybe it's a isolated view. Maybe it's I
0: well. Know. I think I'm I'm sort of more optimistic that maybe there's more. That that view is starting to maybe become a little bit more mainstream because a lot of people, young people now, yes. uh, you know, they're not waiting until they get to their 40s and 50s and you know, close to retirement Before they start asking these questions about meaning. They they actually want meaning in the work they do. I hope yes. and and that that in turn then pushes businesses to communicate their meaning to their right. employees, because otherwise the employees are not going to stay but that I you and know, I digress so actually yeah, yeah. so for you then you know the v c the finance world was something you were very familiar with,
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: then found a way to do you know create an income stream that was sufficient mm-hmm. for you to allow you to focus on this other passion. So can we go back to that um the two nights you spent in you know in the tiger reserve mm. and apart from obviously you know getting a sense of the rawness of what nature is like in its you know authentic uh, unfettered self um what was it that made you feel like you wanted to go back and do something more than just be a tourist
1: yeah i mean that's that's a really lovely question actually um I think for some people, every one of us, you know, when we go into a forest, there is this sense of magic and wonder about it. And that's very hard to articulate it, but it's there. And for me, uh, that was just very gripping actually. I just felt that if I had a choice to live my life, I mean, I would want to be here, obviously not on top of a tree, but (laughs) with a with reasonable shelter. But that's the reason why all of us seek to go there, you know. And and uh, over the years, that has, I would say, gone, The it, it's just intensified. And to me, the combination of forest and water, sitting by a stream, not so much a river's because, you know, I love the Western God streams more than anything in the world. But sitting by a small stream and, you know, which is near, which is flowing through a forest. They, it's just, there's something very cathartic about it. I don't know how to, how to articulate it beyond that. But it, there's a sense of amazing wonder. And you never know what to expect. But when you sit there, there's there's so much of joy in the moment, actually. Yeah. So you know, I think those were the reasons Then, probably I did not even articulate this to myself. It's just something that I really wanted to do.
0: You, you also mentioned that, you know, the uh, the question you asked yourself is that, you know, I spent two nights there and that these guys are here all the time facing this. And I just maybe want to flesh that out a little bit. You know, was it that you felt that they needed help? Uh, they needed finance. They needed some kind of additional support to keep that magic alive or was that you just wanted to be part of that magic more permanently and so you decided to go down that path?
1: I think it was more to do with the feeling that they needed help uh in the last 20 years by the way things have hugely improved for them but but not enough I think they are real heroes in fact the piece that I wrote after I came back in 99 um I did use the word heroes so they are they are are unsung warriors Mm. and they protect so much for us that we are incapable of protecting at at a salary that is a fraction of a fraction of what I would draw. Um, I don't deserve it. You know, when you look at them, I don't deserve the kind of money I make in facilitation, for example. They spend so much more time confronting danger, not so much from wildlife, but from people who are out to you know chop trees or kill poach animals it's a very very hard life um, so it was i think a sense of feeling sorry and feeling that i needed to really help them that was where i came from
0: yeah so then tell us what you did so you you made this group uh, wildlife yes.
1: sort of- so we did a whole bunch of little little things um uh, for the guards uh, in bandipur itself um, I was helping coordinate activities of another national NGO for the guards within parts of Karnataka and so on. A lot of it was to do with uh, trying to see if we could motivate them, uh, see if we could get insurance for you know uh, them because their jobs were at risk. Uh, we got involved with a rural school in Bandipur for four or five years where we uh, worked with tribal kids and that was insane fun. It was great fun. I just thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it It, it, especially because we had a very committed government teacher there. Um, So we didn't do one thing. We just you know the beauty of not having structure is you can follow your heart and do whatever you want to do and after all it's your time. You're spending money. You're not asking anyone for it. It's from your pocket. So we really followed our heart I think these three of us. And then of course the others dropped out after a bit. Um, so it was the lone ranger me to, to take it on after a while, yeah.
0: yeah. And t- tell us a little bit about some of the, um, the, the challenges you faced, because you know, the, working with the children was one of your highlights, I imagine. Mm. But what was, what was difficult about that whole you know, venture and doing things that perhaps others hadn't really done before?
1: So, many people have done a lot of this. Uh, The the issue is sometimes you get a supportive government officer, sometimes you don't. If you don't, it's really very hard. You can't do anything. Uh, The second is, I think there was such a chasm between us and them that you can't, you can't leap that, you can't jump over that. You know, you need somebody in the middle. And, uh, very often you don't find that, like, we found a committed government teacher and he was the person in the middle. He was the bridge between us and the children. But if you were to go and talk to the children or to their parents, uh, in that hamlet where we worked, uh, 80% of the adult population were alcoholic. 80%. And, uh, And this was largely illicit alcohol. And it was a real challenge to deal with, you know, trying to figure out how to insulate the children, see what would be the impact on them growing up and so on. And we couldn't cross that chasm because we couldn't connect to the parents at all. Mm. You know, uh, it's, it was completely hopeless. So we worked for some years. And then, of course, uh, as that project came to some sort of an end, uh, we left what we were doing.
0: So, what was the reason that there were so many alcoholics? I mean, what, what, I, I suppose it's, there's a related question to that: that what, what was the reason these people were doing that job? You know, was it something that their parents had done, and that's all they ever knew, or you know, were were there people coming in from somewhere else? You know, attracted to the job of being a, um, what do you call them? You know, the forest guards, or what's what's their job?
1: Yeah. So, this this hamlet we worked in, there were no forest guards in this hamlet. There were one or two. But uh, most of them were just local folks, tribals, who had been displaced from the forest perhaps a generation ago.
0: I see.
1: Right. So, about 30 years prior to our visit, they had been actually ejected out of the forest. Now, uh, we are, of course, digressing from the main conversation but in a minute actually there is such tremendous inequity in the system that when tribals are displaced they are really given the raw end of the stick and and, uh, there's no money they're given poor land and they're taken away from a lifestyle that they have been used to for eons into something that they're completely unfamiliar with and to get them to be cheap labor or sources of, uh, let's say, labor, essentially labor or or output of, say, uh, dung or milk or whatever you get from the village, um, alcohol is a really good inducer for somebody who's, you know, sort of, uh, who's, who's got to contribute that, who has to give that output. So what happened is the middlemen started feeding them alcohol, where inside the forest, they still used to drink, but they used to drink on festivals and they used to brew their own liquor. Mm. So here you have a different system, and then they get addicted very quickly because it becomes socially acceptable, right? So among tribal communities in many of our areas, even in Kurk where we work, the alcohol, um, alcoholic um, rate is alcoholics rate is very very high. So yeah,
0: okay. yeah.
1: In many ways, it would be some sort of indentured labour. Yes. Yeah. And typically, what we have seen is it takes three generations to break out if it does break out right so the we were trying to be with the children and see if we, you know they could send them to high school and then on and see some way to disconnect their lives from the lives of the parents which is you would argue perhaps not even the best thing to do but that was the kind of prevailing thinking that we had 22 years ago 20 years ago
0: was that the kind of starting point of your journey into wildlife conservation so tell us what happened next from there
1: yeah so, thanks. Uh, so, we we worked together as a small team doing a few things here and there. And we went out of our way to make sure that we were supporting something that nobody else would support. An individual researcher doing something here, a community saying we want to grow some sapling of a tree. You know, little, little initiatives with our own pocket money, the three of us. But at some point, the other guys moved on. And then around... Uh, 2012 something interesting happened, this is in 2012 actually, that um, uh, I read a newspaper article, uh, actually an article in a magazine about uh, poaching in India and in that article they specifically mentioned that in addition to so many tiger skins and leopard skins that had been confiscated by the police, there were uh, 1500 otter skins that had been confiscated, right? And I couldn't believe it. I had never thought about this. But many years later, uh, many years earlier, I had been enchanted by this animal, the otter. I had never really focused on it. And then I said, how could people kill this animal? This is so beautiful. This animal is just something that you can't possibly kill, right? Then I started reading up and understood that its pelt was being exported to China and there on to Europe for handbags and what was happening uh, with the whole, um, with organized poaching across India of otters and certain rivers had been wiped clean of otters. And this was very organized. And then uh, I asked a few of my wildlife friends, who's working on this? you know, is something being done and nobody was doing anything. But everybody was wringing their hands, you know, and part of the reason nobody was doing anything is because there's no money for it. You know, if you work on tigers and leopards and elephants, international NGOs will give you grants and there's some money available in the system even in India to protect these, what we call the charismatic species or the megafauna, you know, rhinos and elephants and so on. But otters, even today, there's no money. By the way, <laughs> so we uh, I caught up with this guy who was, you know, who was a wildlife biologist, and we sat down and said, "Can we do something about it?" And then this guy, uh, I I offered to fund him uh, to join me, and he was anyway quite different. He was really different. He was an engineer who used to hate engineering and uh, became a wildlife biologist and he's even today I think one of the best autobiologists biologists I've ever seen. He got on to, he just got a raft and he rafted down the entire Kaveri River in Karnataka which is some 300 odd kilometers. He did this all by, virtually all by himself with a couple of friends for company. So that's when we began to understand what was going on and Now, to cut a long story short, because it is a long story, we really got excited about otters and started working on the conservation side, not so much on the the research side, for which I'm completely equipped, But more on the conservation side. And that means two things. It means just raising awareness among people, people like you and me, people like the forest department, people like the fisheries department, that this species is dying, number one. The second is going to communities who probably are hurting the species and engaging them in dialogue, right? And the second one has been incredibly tough. You know, uh, nine out of 10 times it has failed because you're dealing with people who either, who want to kill the species for various reasons. So working with them saying don't do it is a very tough ask.
0: Yeah, And, and to that point, I mean, if that is their source of livelihood, then to ask them to not do that would need that they are given an alternative that, look, don't do this, but you can do this instead to, to supplement or replace the money you would have got from So what, what is the alternative for people who maybe make a living from killing and poaching these animals?
1: Okay, so actually the, what happened was around the time we started working, we didn't know this, But the poaching of otters for their pelt, pelt as in skin, actually started reducing. And this is absolutely, uh, there was no intervention that that created that. It was primarily because of better enforcement by government authorities. We didn't know that at that time. Um, But the threats that otters face primarily are from fishermen, not so much from poachers. Because what happens is otters, they feed on fish which are caught in the nets. And then they damage the nets as well. And otters and fishermen just don't like them because you know, their food, their, their source of income is being eaten up by the otters. So that is the conflict. And your question is extremely relevant, actually. What do we do? So we really try and engage with them at two levels. One is to say that, look, this is not the, the animal that's your enemy. There, are, Well, there are actually other species there that are doing much more damage in the river. Um, so we try and bring that up. And the second thing that we do is we really fight for their rights. So we've ended up being, you know, um, going to the fisheries department and making representations on behalf of fishermen, saying, give them this, give them that, you know, just trying to build goodwill and bridges with them. Because really, otters are incredibly intelligent, Rohini. I mean, I can't tell you how smart they are. And you can't, you can't stop them doing this. Yeah. They're just so smart. That whatever you do, they figure your game out very quickly. And we have tried. We've tried quite a few uh, fairly different strategies. So you have to think of how to mollify this quote-unquote victim, who is the fisherman here, mm. and give him some sort of, you know, a carrot that will help him to not do. Often fails, I must tell you that. They will pocket the carrot and still do what they have to do. But in where the main area that we work in, which is a forty-kilometer stretch of river, we have been able to get a reasonable amount of success. So the otter population is more or less stable there. You know?
0: What kind of things have you done to to help conserve?
1: So we've uh, we've uh, run campaigns um, with mascots, for example, where uh, I had a mask of an otter on me. I didn't look very good, I must tell you, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, so we go from village to village uh, with with a story that is in Canada, and then there is this otter on you know sitting there. We've had a couple of films. We've had representations, films dealing with the species, talking about how its um, numbers are dwindling. We've had representations made to the fisheries department to get them better equipment. Um, We've had um, forest officers come in and talk about how important it is. We've done a bunch of things in, uh, and, and, you know, trying to get them to see that the otter is in many ways their friend. And I'll give you just one quick example of that. You know, there is a very nasty fish which is found in the Kaveri River, which is called the African catfish. It's not an Indian fish. Mm. It was brought into India and then it quickly sort of went viral it's become an invasive species and this species of fish actually devours other species of fish oh,
0: I see
1: so having the African catfish in a river is really really bad news for all living things you know except crocs and otters and so on for most other species this thing is an omnivore like nothing on earth the African catfish otters eat African catfish and all fishermen know that African catfish is bad news, also yeah. because you can't sell that fish if you if you catch the fish, nobody will buy it i mean it it just tastes awful. I'm a vegetarian, but I know that so so we bring that bit up, so we show photos of where otters are actually eating African catfish, and then we say, "Look, these guys are your friend they're not they're not against you so this requires engagement not over months but over years,
0: Roini, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's so interesting, because I think the point you made about, you know, you've got to go and tell them stories and make it make it engaging, because, you know, stories kind of a more, a much better way of educating people than lots of facts and figures. Right. Absolutely. So, so, you know, winning people's hearts and minds and you're know, staying in their memory is done more powerfully through stories. So this is one, you know, this is one of the ways you've done it. I mean, can you give us one or two more examples about how otters are good? For the environment and ecosystem what benefits does the river system get
1: so uh, oh yeah of course i mean otters are actually and i'm referring to two species of otters that we work in so there is a species which is called the smooth coated otter which is found in rivers and typically they're found when the river when a stream becomes or you know multiple tributaries converge to form the river so to speak uh, they're not found in the streams the smooth coated otter right? In the little streams in the hills, you find the world's smallest otter, which is called the small clawed otter. And that's incredibly pretty. It's such a cute animal. Uh, I've never seen it, by the way. I've only seen photos of it because it's nocturnal and stuff like that. So uh, the thing about these two species is they are the indicators of what's happening in their systems. If they are there and their populations are stable, what it tells us is that what is happening in the river, by and large, is reasonably okay. There are no serious threats. They are mammals as well. So, they are our outposts in some sense.
0: Yes.
1: You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. In the UK, which is where, you know, maximum amount of conservation work has happened on otters, um, what they found many years ago, way before I think in the 80s or the early 90s, they found that as otter otter populations were declining, they have a species, you have a species in your backyard, which is called the Eurasian otter, or the Lutra Lutra, the the sort of scientific name is. What they found was, as the species was declining, probably something else was going wrong. And when they did their water quality sampling, they found a very high level of pesticides in the water. And uh, some pesticides, consequently, were banned, uh, waters got cleaned up over a period of time and the otters bounce back mm. today in fact this particular species is the only species out of 13 otter species worldwide where the population is actually stable or growing and UK is one place where you know the population is actually increasing and what's primarily happening is you've cleaned up the river, not just for the otter, but for yourselves. I mean, it's also hugely helped the humans who have lived there. So many ways, their future and our future are congruent. You know, yeah. we, we live our lives together. They're not different from us.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I also think they are culturally incredible. I mean, they, they just like dogs in many ways. They have amazing pack behaviors. They have amazing expressions. I can go on and on. Don't didn't get me started on this.
0: But it's <laughs> great. You, you feel to free to go on about it because I'm learning so much about otters and I, you know, I'm I'm fascinated. So so do they actually um do they do they kind of interact with humans or are they very shy? How does that hmm. work when you actually go? So they in? are
1: very <clears throat> yeah. So by and large, they are very shy, occasionally even aggressive. Uh, particularly when they have pups, which happens in winter, uh, and they keep their distance, right? Uh, there are a couple of cases where otters have been reared as pets. Um, most celebrated cases, you know, a book that was released in in the UK 60 years ago, it, it is an iconic book, Rohini, and you must read it sometime. It's called Ring of Bright Water. And it's about this um, guy called Gavin Maxwell, who read Two Otters in captivity. It's a beautiful book, and he writes so well. so uh, actually, that triggered that sort of fond, fondness for otters in the in the u k
0: so otters is your main area that you're focusing on. So I want to ask you, you know these changes that you made, you know obviously it means you have to to go away for considerable periods of time to be in you know the communities where you're helping with conservation how has that you know how have you fitted that into your you know uh, personal life you know with with your family and your work commitments how have you found the balance
1: yeah so that's uh, actually that's been a bit of a problem meaning I have not been able to go away for extended periods of time so everything that I plan has to be uh, since I live in Bangalore, you know, I have to do projects which ensure that I can probably leave the city for about three to four days at a time, not for three to four weeks, for example. I never wanted to miss the experience of being with kids at home. And I don't want to believe later that when my kids have grown up that I didn't spend enough time with them. So it was sort of a balance that we have to walk, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a good point, because I think um, just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean that you have to ignore everything else and just, you know, focus on that exclusively. And also to the point that, you know, that that as, as one individual, there's only so much that any one of us can do. And the more powerful way to make an impact would be to create almost like a network of people who you also infuse with your... Enthusiasm and passion, mm. so that you know it's not just relying on you to to increase awareness. Mm. And I know you're a consummate storyteller, and of course, you know your your Facebook posts and you know the way you actually uh, bring humor into things is, is, I think, is a really it's a much more effective way of getting people to engage. So tell me how you've used that skill of yours to maybe get more people to. To come on board with with your cause.
1: Ah, oh, yeah. So, you know the I, I I'm um, so let me put it this way, Rohini, uh, my um, my scientific ability on the field is extremely limited. In fact, it is zero. Right, I'm very incompetent. M- uh, my strength is I make friends pretty easily and one of the ways i make friends is really by joking around with them and i think that that really really helps uh, unless of course it is official dumb you know if there is some forest officer etc you can't do all that stuff but when you are on the field working with fishers or when you're with communities which are alongside streams and you know you really want to uh, go there and make fun of yourself a little bit and and you know create a light sort of atmosphere. Um, And uh, that really helps. I think this is the biggest strength I bring. So my uh, colleague also tells me, you know, that these guys look forward to your coming in because you're just joking all the time and sort of, and in in a way, I sort of make fun of them as well. Um, Very often when they do something that they shouldn't do, it's nice to make fun rather than to point it out in a serious way. But I can only do that once I make fun of myself. Otherwise, they might feel a little threatened. So making fun of myself is something I'm really good at. You know, it's just like in an organization, you have a finance function and a marketing function. In in wildlife, you have a research function and a conservation function. Research is about biology. Conservation is about people. Yes. And uh, to do conservation, you need to understand the biology without figuring out how they did it. And I can tell you this... Uh, Roini, that most wildlife biologists are not very good in dealing with people.
0: Mm. In fact,
1: that's the single, that's the reason why wildlife conservation has often suffered. They would much rather do field work, come in, do a report, put it up on one of these research uh, platforms, you know, and that's pretty much the end of the story. Conservation is completely about changing emotions and managing people's behaviors.
0: So sometimes there has to be an economic um, sort of, some sort of economic um, imperative. So I I suppose the point I'm trying to make is even with conservation, if somebody's being asked, don't do this, and it's going to hurt their pockets, then you need to find a way to, to, to give them an alternative. So it doesn't hurt their pocket anymore, or better still give them an alternative that is even better for them longer term. And I think that's the bit where maybe people like you can really come in because you know, you've got an economics background, you've got a finance background, and you're great with people and storytelling. And it's got nothing to do with biology. It's got nothing to do with science. It's got all, everything to do with human behavior. So in that vein, and I know I'm probably you know, throwing you in the deep end, asking you this question, what do you think the people that you're trying to get on board, you know, whether it's the fishermen or the people in the villages, what is the, the one or two things that they will that they need or that would help them to see that it's a win-win to protect some of these animals?
1: So the, the first thing, and I'm putting this in sort of decreasing order, the first thing most people in villages that we work in is some sort of status or stature, which is completely absent right now right? So they just seek some sort of recognition and stature. Not, they also are, in general, um, very ambitious about their children, by and large. And that's a wonderful trigger to work with them. So sometimes working with them to get their children admission into a a high school somewhere, or getting them a a token scholarship goes a long way. Uh, I would say, Getting them additional income actually comes third in the pecking order. And uh, most of them have a, you know, have some sort of income where they get by. What they don't want is a drastic fall in income. So what we try and do is to figure out ways by which we can get them to get some sort of, you know, we can't increase their income, but we can certainly get them some freebies from the government uh, by speaking to government officials. Or we could see if we can connect them to others who can do things. And we have done some of this earlier. Uh, The last one, you know, the third one I talked about, additional money, uh, is a very tough one. We've tried, we've failed, we've come up with models, it takes time. But the first two, stature, stature is quite easy, actually. You get somebody to come and give them an award you get uh, their photos up on Facebook or somewhere and you and you know if you follow my Facebook post occasionally I get somebody in like that and I write a little bit and then I make sure I go back and I show them that you know your photos on Facebook or I have, they have done this. So things like that uh, really really help. The primary conservation work in conservation in in habitat and wildlife is happening with the small NGOs you know uh, ones which uh, are a few guys few folks coming together, very limited resources, raising money through crowdfunding, don't have access to the large funders. They often actually use their money very wisely, very carefully. And number of them are doing remarkable work. You know, so again, using principles of, you know, uh, take pride in the species in your backyard and um, be emotionally connected to this species it's declining in number it's actually an endangered species I think at the moment so I'm not giving you a really simple answer what I'm saying is there are a number of small NGOs the larger NGOs tend to be more mainstream yeah
0: Yeah. and I think this is this is a problem that occurs across all different areas of you know doing good you know that you have uh, the larger NGOs have more money but they're also more maybe bureaucratic and you know there's there's more expense and this is me just literally thinking outside the box now is it possible to have a kind of like a vc version for small ngos because it feels to me like these these young you know people they have a lot of passion and they understand the the cause that they're going after they you know they they have the courage to go and do what's needed what they don't have is the funding and what they don't have is maybe the time to to go and do the fundraising because you need somebody else to do that, right? So wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a vehicle whose whole purpose was to, just like you would in a VC, identify really promising businesses to help them and give them the funding and support them and mentor and, and you know you kind of it stops every NGO, every small NGO reinventing the wheel because there'll be lots of benefits of having a centralized System that does lots. I don't know. I just think that something like that would be so incredibly helpful to so many people who have the passion but will be crushed by the inability to raise funds or not having the knowledge of how to use their funds well. You know. So um, I don't know. It's just an idea. You know, someone like you has the clearly has the experience and the skill of doing something like that, and it may bypass the need. To become really large it's kind of almost it's a it's a vicious spiral isn't it that you can't really do enough until Mm. you're you're large and you have lots of funding but how do you get to that stage you know when people don't know about you or don't know what you're doing or trust you enough to fund you because you're a one-man band. i think it's a
1: fantastic idea i think it's an absolutely rocking idea
0: i think it may be the way You know, um, to encourage more innovation and more, more people to take on small causes that nobody else even knows exist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. My dream is to make the otter the tiger of the river. Yeah. Right. I want if I can create that sense of beauty around the species and say that, you know, this is the animal that represents you in the river, and this is the tiger of the river. Right, I think that's the viral effect.
0: Yes, that's what I really
1: want from you know uh, the work that we are doing. Do uh, just to tell you, last month I did a uh, uh, I did three Zoom calls in June with three bunches of kids, right? And just talking about, and I asked them to call me. Two of them, two groups, called me Otter Uncle. I said, I'm banning you from calling me by name. You have to call me Otter Uncle,
0: right? So.
1: Uh, we, I go to colleges. I've gone to MBA colleges, and you're really trying to make this go viral. Which, what, which strategy will actually work? You don't know. You've got to fire in all directions. But the more you make it go viral, the and and otters lend themselves. They are not like fish. They are so charismatic. They are so beautiful. It's just photos of the otter and talking about what they did. Right? It's so beautiful. How can you not love that animal? Yes. So. The whole idea is make it just something that's so beautiful that people will stand up when something is happening to it.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and I think you're you're right. You know, it's I think what you need is a Disney film on otters. You know, where the otter is the main character, and I think everyone will <laughs> jump in and save the otter. So, my final question to you, Gopai, Is you know, every one of us has maybe um an idea of what a fulfilled life looks for us, and that you know includes our work you know our community work our family and the whole lot you know it's basically our life what would you say is your definition of a fulfilled life
1: Uh, let's put it let's uh, let me think this through in two three buckets very and you know it's kind of intuitive at one level so it is can i make a difference to the planet at the Yeah. And I mean a microscopic difference, but a difference to the planet. That would be one without necessarily neglecting what my duty is, let's say, to the family. You know, uh, for example, um, my mother, who's pretty infirm at the moment, can can I make sure that I still look after her while doing what I'm, what I really want to do? And at the third level, doing these two with A sense of internal joy, I think, is really important. I mean, I have this very dear friend called Hanumanth. And one day, some years ago, he asked me, we were doing something. And it was a tough job. And he said, you don't look happy while doing this. And uh, I said, well, you have to do it. But I'm not really happy. We were doing a particular project. um, And he said, you don't sound happy or look happy. And then he said, if you're not happy, why are you doing it? Right. And it really struck me as something I never spent time thinking on that, you know, you sometimes want to do something and it's at the cost of your individual happiness. And I took that decision then on that I will never take on something that doesn't make me happy, that I don't feel really supercharged about, you know, that I don't I, I want to come skipping to my office room to work. You know, I, I just don't want to feel ever that I'm doing something because it's drudgery. Um, I think these are three levels at which I see what a fulfilled life would be and I really skip to work. Always follow your path of happiness because I think many of us don't and uh, whatever we are doing doesn't appeal to us beyond the point and uh, it is not at all difficult to attempt to be happy and seek that. That is one thing that I think uh, I learned, I don't think I had it in the beginning, but I learned it. Uh, The second one is the whole issue of inequality, and I'm not spouting wisdom here, but I think what everybody, whether there are people working in organization, corporates, whether they are people working on children, elderly people, people with disability, you just name it. Everybody understands this fact that our society is horrendously unequal. And conservationists see this in front of them. I mean, the conflict happens because of inequality, right? Uh, I think we have to address inequality. And if we can address it in any way which gives us happiness, which we feel... So not everyone will connect to wildlife conservation. You might connect to education, for example, or healthcare or whatever. But if you can work on this whole issue of inequality and seek to follow your, your sort of your mojo whatever you know your what what really appeals to you in that probably there is a there is a sense of fulfillment waiting for you there
0: i love that thank you so much Gopa. thank you for your time and your you know the work you've done and your work you're doing and you
1: know thank you so much rohini i i really enjoyed answering these questions because they were very perceptive questions thank you so much
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I learned a great deal of things about wildlife conservation in India, uh, about the lives of the people involved in uh, forestry and other conservation activities on the ground. But more importantly, about uh, the beautiful otter. Um, I think my key takeaway from Gopai is that it is possible to create a fulfilled life Uh, simply by focusing on the things that make you happy and in his case by doing the things that will make a difference um, to our world. Um, I hope you're going to be inspired by his story and some of the things that he has talked about so you can create uh, your fulfilled life. I want to thank Mike Pearl for his music uh, at the start and end of this episode and all the others in this podcast. If you'd like Mike to create some music for you, you can reach out to him direct by email. His email address is MP, that's M for Mike, P for Pearl, 969696 at hotmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, then why not leave us a review and tell more people about it. I look forward to being back again very soon and look after yourself. Bye-bye for now.